Last time we spoke about the Sandinenda campaign. Both Buna and Gona had fallen, allowing valuable troops and specifically tanks to gradually be allocated to the Sandinenda front. The last Japanese toehold for their failed Port Moresby campaign was hanging by a thread, and the American and Australians were on the verge of cutting it. Despite the tenacity of the defenders, they were in the end fighting a doomed battle. They were running out of everything imaginable. The situation was becoming so dire, leading to some of the defenders further inland to resort to cannibalism to survive. We also talked about the Tai Paiyap army's expedition into Yunnan province. Fibun sought a greater Tai kingdom, and his efforts were providing territorial gain, but at the same time he knew the Allies had stolen the initiative in the Pacific War. This led him to distance Thailand from its Japanese ally, hoping to break a deal with the Allies if possible. Today we are venturing back to Starvation Island. This episode is the battles of the Galloping Horse and the Seahorse. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just wanted to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube where I'm rolling out a seven-part series on China's warlord era, and another multi-part series on things you might not know about Pearl Harbor. And just a reminder, if there is any subjects you really want to hear about but it doesn't fit this podcast because of the format, let me know by leaving comments on any of my YouTube videos, or you can catch me over at the Kings and Generals Discord server. I am soon making a Patreon account, and I hope to make exclusive content based on subjects you really want to hear about, so if that's interesting to you, Please stay tuned. Now the last time we were talking about Starvation Island, both the IGN and the IGA had agreed the jig was up, and they needed to evacuate the men. Operation KE was formed, but it could only occur in late January or early February. The combined fleet in the 8th Area Army completed a basic outline of Operation KE, and it is as follows. By January the 14th, one infantry battalion would become a rearguard as provisions were stockpiled on Guadalcanal until January the 15th. The 17th Army would begin a phased withdrawal to the western end of the island, aiming to be there for about January the 25th. Meanwhile, the IGA and the IGN would complete their airfield development program to initiate an air superiority campaign by January the 28th. The Russell Islands would be secured as a staging area. There would be three lifts on the evacuation using destroyers and landing craft en route for the Russells, where they would continue to withdraw. Submarines would be employed to grab all those who failed to get aboard the destroyers and the landing craft. The target date for completion of Operation KE was set for February the 10th. 
To pull this massive Dunkirk-like withdrawal off, the Japanese devised an elaborate series of feints to keep the Americans guessing as to what they were doing. They would step up radio traffic in Java, perform a night raid against Port Darwin, the heavy cruiser Tone would perform a diversion operation east of the Marshalls, and submarines would be employed to shell Canton Island. Now there was a ton of internal fighting about Operation KE. For one thing, the IGA believed the use of landing craft and submarines was some sort of facade, masking an intent to jettison the 17th Army men. To brutally summarize that further, the IGA literally thought the IGN were planning on throwing their men overboard. Yes, this is a real thing. The truth of the matter was, as you probably would think, the IGN was literally scrapping the bottom of the barrel as to what they could commit to the operation. Valuable destroyers were being risked. Again, as I keep using the same metaphor, Japan was a starving person eating their limbs to survive another day. On January the 11th, the 8th Area Army performed a war game of the evacuation plan and it illuminated certain problems. General Imamura estimated the loss of half the destroyers committed to Operation KE, while Commander Watanabe had a more optimistic view, believing 80% of the 17th Army survivors would be extracted from Guadalcanal. Admiral Yamamoto hid his personal views. He estimated that about a third of the 17th Army would be saved at a price of about half the destroyers used. And Yamamoto? He was a gambling man. And, you know, just for an example, as for uh, an exclusive Patreon episode, right there, Admiral Yamamoto and his gambling. That would make for a really interesting one, you know, talking about what he did outside of the war, because, my God, he was a prolific gambler. He actually wanted to open up his own casino in Monte Cristo. And that's not an exaggeration. He really sought to do this. And maybe even talk about the stories of him chasing a certain geisha. But anyways, I desist. The amount of naval, air, and ground forces available in the Solomons weighed heavily on the commanders adding to their pessimism. Admiral Yamamoto retained the two super battleships Yamato and Musashi, and the large carrier Zukaku at Truk. He detailed four heavy cruisers, battleships Kongo and Haruna, the carriers Junyo and Zoyo, to Kondo's advance force participating in the operation. Destroyer Squadron No. 2, consisting of nine destroyers, would be a screen alongside the light cruiser Jinsu. Mikawa's 8th Fleet would have the evacuation runs, and his force consisted of the heavy cruisers Chokai, Kumano, light cruiser Sendai, and over 21 destroyers. On the other side of the coin, Admiral Nimitz had no big gun units in reserve when it came to the Pacific now. What was available was carriers Enterprise and Saratoga, three battleships, 13 cruisers, and 45 destroyers. Rear Admiral Aubrey Fitch was the commander of aircraft in the South Pacific, but the next level of command fell onto Brigadier General Nathan Twinning. Nathan had been given the newly created 13th Army Air Force, consisting of the Warnut 11th, the 5th Bomb Groups of 8 B-17 squadrons, 2 squadrons of B-26s, four fighter squadrons of P-39s, one squadron of P-38s, and another of P-40s, alongside reconnaissance squadrons of F-5As and transport squadrons of C-47Ss. The 13th Air Force numbered 272 aircraft, but by January the 22nd, it would have a strength of just around 92. There was also Marine Brigadier General Francis McCauley, commanding both the 2nd Marine Air Wing and the Cactus Air Force. By January the 28th, 
423 land-based Navy and Marine aircraft were assigned under him for the South Pacific. Guadalcanal held about 81 of these aircraft, with another 195 sitting on Espiritu Santo. The other 147 were scattered around the South Pacific. To say the Americans had a lot of planes is an understatement. A rough estimate of the effective number of land-based aircraft ready to pounce on Operation KE when it began was at around 200. Enterprise in Saratoga added another 161, and six other escort carriers another 178, to make a grand total of 539 aircraft. Yikes. The 11th Air Fleet at Rabaul, alongside the 6th Air Division of the IGA Air Force, projected a commitment of 100 IGA and 212 IGN aircraft, including 182 fighters. Alongside this, Zoikaku held another 64. Thus, their land-based strength was around 376 alongside 60 float planes from the R-Area Air Force, making a grand total of 436 aircraft. The IGA Air Force estimated Guadalcanal to have around 150 aircraft, while New Guinea would have around 400 to 500. The reality would see Operation KE with 436 Japanese aircraft facing 569 Allied, an astonishing number. As bad as the aircraft numbers were against the Japanese, the ground forces on Guadalcanal were by far much, much worse. General Patch activated the 14th Corps HQ on January the 2nd, fielding 50,666 men. This consisted of the 25th Infantry, 147th Independent Infantry Regiment, and 10 infantry regiments from the 2nd Marine Division, the 164th, and 132nd Infantry. Admiral Halsey had actually resisted redeploying the 2nd Marine Division elsewhere, stating he would wait and quote, Wait until Army combat efficiency had been demonstrated. For the Japanese, the 17th Army was around 20,671 men. But through the process of combat, starvation, and disease, they were probably around 14 to 16,000 left. For their artillery, they had about three operable field pieces left with a severe lack of ammunition. Meanwhile, Patch's artillery was around 167 weapons ranging from 75mm pack howitzers to 155mm guns, filled to the brim with ammunition. Very lopsided. Now, something rather surprising is for once going on on the Allied side. Their intelligence failed. It failed to unmask what the Japanese were truly up to. It also failed to figure out the enormous material disparity between the forces at play. It seems the success of Japanese offenses from August to November kept the Americans thinking that they were coming back for more. The American intelligence for Guadalcanal was relying heavily upon aerial reconnaissance and radio traffic, which was puzzled by the increased amount of motion in December and early January. They were predicting a new Japanese offensive was coming at any moment. Thus, all the Japanese feints were working. It was really tricking the Americans. The massive amount of naval movement occurring at Rabaul suggested the Japanese were also preparing another South Pacific naval offensive. The Americans assumed it was another ploy to regain air and sea superiority. But there were a ton of unknowns. On January the 1st, the Japanese changed their ciphers for their coded communications, forcing the American intelligence to make educated guesses on the movement of troops and figures. 
But the first amount of solid data poured in on January the 14th. The Americans managed to pinpoint Zoikaku and Zoiho of Carrier Division 1. Then on January the 20th, they managed to predict Carrier Division 2 was en route to truck. The analysts also found word of Operation KE, but they could not figure out the nature of it. What they did know was that there was a ton of naval units in the southeast area, and based on that alone, it seemed to them KE was either New Guinea or the Solomons. As for many of those feints, the American analysts figured the increased radio chatter from the Marshalls and Gilberts was just a deception. The heavy cruiser Tone, they thought might be solo raiding, and as for the submarine shelling of Canton, it did not really ruffle many feathers. The presence of four carriers at truck really had their attention, however. Everything else just seemed like a deception. I can't argue enough how crucial intelligence played in World War II. It's simply fascinating, and it's a subsection of history that gets glossed over quite a lot. Imagine being the quote-unquote pencil pushers working tirelessly to figure out where exactly some warship was in the Pacific Ocean at all times. It's crazy to think about. Now during the third week of January, there emerged more and more indications of a major operation cooking up in the South Pacific. They expected the oven to ding at the end of the month. On January the 26th, the SyncPak Intelligence announced the initiation of an unknown Japanese offensive, which was KE. They pointed out that it was either going to be towards New Guinea or the Solomons as the target, and the concentration of massive forces at truck included the combined 2nd, 3rd, and 4th fleets, the submarine command, and both carriers division 1 and 2. Given that information, Admiral Halsey and General Patch began to devise their tactical operations. Now while all of this crazy concentration of IGN forces was going on, the Tokyo Express was also resumed. Despite the terrible success rate of the drum method in December, the Japanese refined the technique further and well they tried again. They wrapped Kapok around the drums now so they would not sink when strafed, and the destroyers would deploy army officers with small landing craft to guarantee the ropes attached to the drums would make it to the shore parties. On December the 30th, the 8th Fleet tossed 10 destroyers for the, quote, resumption of the reinforcement. This is what it was officially called, but in reality, it was just resupply runs. The IGN expected the Americans to pounce upon the run fiercely and braced accordingly. The run had a screen of five destroyers fitted with an extra pair of 13mm machine guns to shoot at any of those PT boats that might pounce on them. The R-Area Air Force also provided reconnaissance and protection, while the 11th Air Fleet would night bomb the American airfields and provide daylight fighter cover. Rear Admiral Tomoji Koyanagi commanded the reinforcement unit of 10 destroyers departing Shortland on January the 2nd, bound for Cape Esperance with much-needed food and ammunition. Five B-17s and P-38s en route to Boon came across them and bombed them without any success at about 2.15pm. While they missed the ships, they were able to raise the alarm, and by 6pm, nine Dauntless, four Wildcats, and five P-38s intercepted the unit. Koyanagi had his vessels swerve as best as they could, but the Susukaze sustained damage from a near miss and had to turn back with one sister destroyer as an escort. After this, Koyanagi's force faced a squadron of floatplanes and 11 PT boats. 
In the end, the 17th Army was happy to report 540 drums and 250 rubber bags of supplies were recovered. It was around five days worth of supply. Meanwhile, the Japanese offensive efforts and airfield construction activities seemed to point towards the importance of Munda, prompting Admiral Halsey to order a surface ship bombardment. He synchronized it alongside a large troop transport of reinforcements for Guadalcanal on January the 4th. Seven transports bearing the last echelon of the 25th Division departed Nomea on January the 1st, supported by Task Force 64, commanded by Admiral Lee, and Task Force 67, commanded by Rear Admiral Walden Ainsworth. They unloaded 2,000 men as four cruisers and three destroyers shelled Munda with over 4,000 shells. It took Munda around two hours to repair the damage. Ten buildings were hit, and 31 men were killed or wounded. As a reprisal, the R Area Air Force and the 11th Air Fleet tossed 14 zeros and 4 vowels against the American task force. The vowels landed a 550-pound bomb on the Achilles, knocking out her turret number 3, killing 6 men and wounding another 7. Koyanage led another sortie with 8 destroyers on January the 10th. This time he was intercepted by 9 PT boats alerted by the Coast Watchers. The Hayatsukaze was hit by a torpedo from PT-112, killing 8 and wounding 23 men, but she managed to continue her run. The 17th Army on the 11th reported that they recovered 250 drums and 30 tons of provisions and ammunition. Now on the ground of Starvation Island, General Patch instructed his men for the first phase of what was going to be a grand mop-up operation of Guadalcanal. His intelligence had a general idea of the Japanese positions, but nothing too specific. The intelligence had little to no idea of the plight of the 17th Army when it came to their provisional situation. It was a, a huge oversight, honestly. To kind of give a summary, for a long time, the intelligence on Guadalcanal was indicating nothing less than the Japanese were on the verge of commencing another huge operation. But of course, as we all know, this was the opposite. They were in fact forming a large retreat. But alongside this, the Americans had little to no information on the reality of the plight of the Japanese. They had no idea that they were starving, really low in ammunition and such. So when they made any of their plans, they just expected the enemy to be provisioned. If they had known the true state of the provisions, they probably would have just charged and run over the Japanese. But instead, they played it cautiously and conservatively, as anyone would. Aerial reconnaissance was mostly what General Patch had to go on, and this led him to declare a line extending south from the beach across Hill 53 and around 3,000 yards west of the position of his 14th Corps as their next objective. In the northern half of the Corps' front, the 2nd Marine Division would push west along the shore while the 25th Division would take all that was northwest of the Matanikau. The 25th Division would also have the job of having to dispose of the Gifu. The Gifu, located in the Mount Austin area, was southeast of the Matanikau, where hills 44 and 43 made up what is called the Seahorse. Between the southwest and the northwest fork of those were a much larger bare hill named the Galloping Horse. Major General Lawton Collins commanded the 25th Division, he was 45 years old from Louisiana, and he had been soldiering for 25 years, but without much real battle experience. He devised a plan that was both simple and sophisticated for the job. 
The 27th Infantry Regiment would contain the Gifu with a single battalion, while the other two enveloped the Seahorse from the south. Then the 27th Infantry would push south from Hill 53, known as the Horse's Head, to meet up with the 35th Infantry moving west from Hill 43. These maneuvers would create three large pockets that could be reduced at a general pace. Now to sustain all of this required some heavy-duty logistics, which the U.S. Army had. As the U.S. Army dug further inland, they began building up paths and roads, and soon each infantry regiment had its own trails, albeit only hospitable to jeeps. They had a unique way of getting supplies to the front lines. It was a combination of soldiers, native carriers, hand-carrying, and human-powered boats and barge flotillas going up the Matanacal. Engineers had built up elevated cable trolleys that were lifting supplies and lowering wounded men over steep parts. Alongside this, B-17s would drop supplies, and by drop, I mean literally upon the 35th Infantry Battalions who were deeper in the interior. On January the 6th, the 17th Army alerted Rabal that the Americans were unleashing a new offensive. To meet this offensive, it seems the Japanese were grasping at straws. According to Colonel Konama, the defensive plan was simply for each unit to stand unflinchingly at its post. The Americans would naturally infiltrate many of the gaps in their lines, but once both forces became intermingled, the Americans would not be able to exploit their major advantage, that of firepower. At night, the Japanese could try to hinder the American supply efforts to their most frontal units. The idea was simply to prolong the Americans as long as possible, as the 17th Army on Guadalcanal was expecting reinforcements, because, do remember, no one had told them yet about the withdrawal. The 27th Infantry marching up the galloping horse resembled ants crawling up a hill. Colonel William McCulloch ordered the 1st Battalion commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Claude Journey to move up Hill 66, while the 3rd Battalion led by Lieutenant Colonel George Bush marched towards the horse's head from Hill 55. The Marines reported that a very well dug in Japanese position was found at the waterhole in the valley between the 1st Battalion 27th Infantry and its objective, Hill 57. Thus, this area was subjected to a lot of American firepower. On January the 10th, six battalions of guns tossed 92.5 tons of shells at the waterhole for over 25 minutes. Then Dauntless came dropping another three dozen 325 pound depth charges. The 1st Battalion took Hill 57 after what they called very little resistance from three machine guns. Bush's 3rd Battalion began its trek from Hill 54, marching upon the rear hoof of the galloping horse. High ground dominated their route near the horse's body. At 6.35 a.m., after the aerial bombing of the waterhole was over, the 3rd Battalion crossed past Hill 51 without any opposition and by 7.30, its leading company was halfway up Hill 52, when they were fired upon by some machine guns. Bush was forced to toss his reserves to hit the enemy and ordered another aerial bombardment. Six aircraft dropped six depth charges on Hill 52, followed by some artillery, absolutely smashing the Japanese. While the bombardment raged, I Company scaled the eastern side of Hill 52, and the assault companies took out six machine guns killing around 30 Japanese on Hill 52 in the end. The 3rd Battalion achieved its objective by 4.25pm, and they began to dig in to defend their new conquest. 
One of the most immediate issues the 3rd Battalion would face was not the enemy. It actually was a dangerous lack of water. This forced a standstill and what Lieutenant Colonel Bush referred to as inertia upon the men. The platoon leaders became lethargic from extreme thirst. Then exhaustion and soon heat exhaustion was becoming critical. In one platoon, only 10 men remained conscious. Now, if you remember one of my special interviews with Dave Holland, he actually specifically talked about this issue. Dave Holland himself was a former Marine and he performs guided tours on Guadalcanal. And he says the trek up that part of that mountain, which he has done tours upon, and many others that were similar, literally takes about two jugs of water right out of you. To be frank, it's no small issue. And here is a quote as Dave put it. The boys did not have proper water training. They didn't ration it properly during the climb up and they suffered because of it. And I definitely can attest to some of the sources that I've read. Most of these boys who were green, mind you, they didn't have proper water training. And they simply drank everything that they had as they went up, left with nothing when they got to the top of the summit. And they paid heavily for this. In all major modern militaries today, for ground forces, you are given water training. If you ever want to look at a really extreme case of this, just check out how the French Foreign Legion trains out in the desert. That is crazy. Now seeing that the 3rd Battalion was immobilized, Lt. Col. Herbert Mitchell was ordered to take the 2nd Battalion to pass through the 3rd's position and to continue the attack for them. The 2nd Battalion's attack would come from Hill 57 at around 6.30am on January the 12th and they assaulted two features upon it, Exton and Sims Ridge. Exton's Ridge was seized and secured after a minor skirmish, but Sims Ridge proved to be a much more difficult task. A few companies made a frontal assault upon Sims Ridge and they were tossed back by extreme machine gun fire. This prompted Mitchell to order some companies the next day to swing wide right to approach the horse's head through some jungle cover while others contained Sims Ridge. The plan did not go according to plan, and it looked like disaster was going to strike, leading Captain Charles Davis to volunteer to lead four men against a knoll at the southern end of the ridge that housed some Japanese machine gun positions and motor placements. The men had to crawl on their stomachs, getting just 10 yards away from the enemy emplacements, and as they did so, the Japanese tossed two grenades right at the men, but extremely lucky for them, both grenades happened to be duds. The Americans, in return, hurled back eight grenades all at once as Davis leapt to his feet to fire his rifle, but it jammed. He quickly drew his pistol to fire upon the enemy while waving at his comrades. Davis's call to charge was electrifying for the men and they soon surged down the galloping horse. By noon, the 27th Infantry had taken its objective. Meanwhile, over at the coastal sector, the 2nd Marine Division was being led temporarily by General DeCarry. DeCarry was covering for Major General John Martson, who was personally ordered to stay in New Zealand because he was senior to General Patch, and Guadalcanal was now a army operation, thus it was kind of a move to keep the peace between the services. You know, to show some respect and friendliness. Something the Japanese should have done as well. General DeCarry aligned the 6th Marines in the front, allowing the exhausted 2nd Marines to take the left and for the 8th Marines, they would advance on the beach. 
planning to attack in an echelon from left to right, or in terms of the ground from the head of the ravine going downwards. The rationale behind this was so that each unit would be able to maneuver forward, clearing the lane so that the next unit coming on their right would be able to take the rear of the enemy's positions. The Japanese had placed their machine gun nests expertly so the firing lanes overlooked the seaward approach. Thus, any units attempting to come from the east would have to go through a gauntlet. On January the 13th, the Marines used artillery and mortars to smash the Japanese before the 2nd Marines began their march from Hill 66 to hit the 1st Battalion of the 220th Regiment led by Major Hayakawa Kikyo. The 2nd Marines fought through a maelstrom of motor fire, but they managed to secure Hill 66 while the 8th Marines plunged into a vicious battle in the ravine. By nightfall, two companies of the 8th Marines were reaching the objective, but the Japanese continued to fire upon them fiercely. The next day, the assault would advance further, but the exhausted 2nd Marines would finally be opted out and relieved by the 6th. Meanwhile, the 8th Marines began to encounter heavy resistance at the slopes of Hill 83 and 84. Over on the coast, tanks supported the attack, but they were failing to neutralize the Japanese positions. To the left, the 6th Marines began to press north into the flank of the Japanese facing the 8th Marines. This prompted General Maruyama to order Colonel Tamika Harukazu to lead a withdrawal of the men around 1,300 yards to reserve positions. Some soldiers from the 4th and 16th regiments managed to withdraw by the 16th, but the rest were being trapped by the 6th Marines pressing into their flank from the north. On January the 17th, one Japanese officer noted, The American bombardment became fiercer and fiercer, and the company area was riddled with craters like a bee's nest. Eventually, the 6th Marines finished their drive, reaching the beach as the 8th Marines cleared out the ravines. By the 18th, the Sendai Division, counting around 3,700 mouths to feed, and the 4th and 16th Infantry Regiments, who bore the brunt of the enemy's attack, had around 80 men apiece. The Marines had killed an estimated 643 Japanese over the course of four days. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube where I am rolling out a 7-part series on China's warlord era and a multi-part series on things you might not know about the attack on Pearl Harbor. And, as always, just another reminder, if there are subjects you would like me to tackle that can't be hit on this podcast or the Age of Conquest podcast, just let me know by commenting on any of my YouTube videos or you can catch me over at the Kings and Generals Discord. I am creating a Patreon account and I hope to make some exclusive content to hit those specific subjects, so just let me know. The campaigns to take the Galloping Horse, the Seahorse, and push further west of the Matanikau were causing massive casualties upon the starving Japanese. All efforts were being made to get the Japanese off the island, but both the Americans and now the IGN were in desperation. <laughs> 